What's up? This is Ben Giles from the Small Town Titans. You are listening to The Hook Rocks with Jay Scott, and we'll talk about anything that has to do with rock and roll. Good evening, everybody. It is Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're staying safe, staying healthy. As I say before every episode, I hope you're finding your escape. I hope you're finding the smile on your face. And we all continue to get through this pandemic. I know numbers are kind of spiking all over the country. I hope they soon go down, but it is flu season. So I know a lot of, uh, a lot of health systems are kind of being overrun right now, but like we always do for you, we offer an escape. We talk music, we interview great guests, we talk new rock, rock and roll discussions, and thank you for all the positive feedback, and thank you for allowing us to be your escape during this time. We'd like to bring in another guest, another interview, one of my favorite guitar players from back in the day until now, and... Mr. Reb Beach from Winger, Whitesnake, formerly a Dokken, too, as well. How you doing today, Reb? What's going on? Hey, Jay. I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on. This is awesome. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. I remember, gosh, I don't remember how old I was. It either had to be going into freshman year of high school. I was laying on the couch watching MTV, and this video from Madeline came on. And I was Ooh. like, wow, this is a really good tune. And... My brother got home. My, 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 my brother got up or came home or whatever, and he was the one that introduced me to rock. He was kind of like my gateway with all the stuff he'd bring in. I go, dude, you got yep, to check out this band Winger. Yep. You know, he's like, who? I'm like, Winger. He's like, whatever. You know, so then he went in his room. I know. <laughs> it's the stupidest name. And then like a month later, he comes home with the record. And he's like, oh, this is a really good band. Did you check him out? I'm like, I told you about these guys like a month and a half ago. And he's like, yeah, they're really good. I'm like, yeah, I know they're awesome. So thanks for doing this. I appreciate well, it. Thanks. Yeah. No, I, I remember that video, the Madeline video, you know, uh, winger was done. We were over Atlantic was going to put us up on the shelf. And then Rod Morgenstein knew a guy at, uh, MTV who got us on the headbangers ball at, 1.55 a.m. in the morning on a Saturday night, um, well, actually Sunday morning, and I stayed up to watch it, and from that one showing at 1.55 a.m., the radio got calls the next Monday, and um, and they got inundated with calls, and that's what got us to eventually go gold. Um, it took months to happen, but um, we were very lucky. We were going to be on the shelf for sure. 
Yeah, no, it was a great moment for me because I I loved the song. The song was had such a great hook to it, and you know it was like ten o'clock in the morning. It was like eleven o'clock. It wasn't prime time for videos, and I remember telling all my friends, "I'm like, oh, this is a great band called Winger," and everyone's like, "What are you talking about?" I'm like, "No, this is a great band." And and sure enough, <laughs> months later, you know everybody was listening to you guys. Obviously, the big hit with Seventeen, and uh, you know the rest is history. And now here we are. Yeah, yeah. I was I was very 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 lucky um, to have been in the right place at the right time. Really. Well, we always start the same way every time we have a new guest on the podcast, and that is the essence of the show. Just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a band, an album, a performance, or a song that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? It was Kiss, Madison Square Garden. Um, it was 1977, I think. Um, and my, I, I was at boarding school. My parents sent us to boarding school so they could all have affairs. And (laughs) my brother was the director of the Metropolitan Opera in New York city. And I went to visit him for a couple days and he said, there's a show playing from some band called kiss at the garden. I was like, kiss. Oh my God. And I went. I went and it changed my life. I, I knew, I mean, I knew I was going to be uh, um, in, in music somehow, but I didn't know that I was going to be a guitar player. When I saw Ace, I was like, oh, that's what I'm going to be. Because before that, I was a piano. I, I thought I wanted to be Elton John because um, I loved Elton John. I, and I played the piano since I was four. And um, I saw that and it changed the whole thing and rushed out and bought a guitar uh, and started just playing every day for six hours. So the guitar was, well, the piano was your introduction to music, and then you saw Kiss, you wanted to pick up a guitar. When did it become like, I want to be in a band, I want to do this, I want to get some guys together and, and form a band and make some music? It was just slow kind of process. You know, like I, I played in a garage band in my garage, um, and nothing happened with that. And then I, we went on vacation in Florida and the guy I lived in, dad had an apartment in Florida. And, and so I lived in five a, and the guy who lived in five D played in a band, a top 40 band in Fort Lauderdale. And, um, their guitar player sucked. And, and you know, he took me to see them and, and their guitar player sucked. And I, I said, your guitar player sucks. And, <laughs> and <laughs> so, um, I was better than him. And, and so, uh, they fired him and they, I moved to Florida. They put me in the band right out of high school. So, uh, I did that for a long time for like four years. And it was, I had a ball. I mean, I had fun. Cause I was, you know, young and gorgeous and I didn't know I was gorgeous. If I had known I was that gorgeous, I would have even had more fun, but it was really, really great. Um, you know, cause we were the house band at summers on the beach and art stocks playpen in Fort Lauderdale. And then we traveled around too. Uh, and it was great. It was very fruitful. Um, you know, I stayed in dad's apartment. He was never there and, um, it was a great life. But then I got sick of playing jump on the keyboards every night. Cause I didn't, I only played guitar half time. And so I moved to New York City and got a job as a singing waiter um, in the in the Bowery in uh, CBGB's, right across from CBGB's. And I had a roommate, you know, an old friend of mine who lived there, so I moved in with him. And then I 
hung out at the music stores like Manny's and Sam Ash. And um, that's where I got Sir Guitars. Pensa Sir was there across the street. It was called Rudy's Music Stop. Um, and heard about an audition for Fiona, who was on Atlantic Records, and Bo Hill was producing. So I went out to the Long Island and auditioned and got it, and that's how I got my foot in the door. When you go back and you talk about the guitar, you mentioned Ace Freely was you know the first influence for you for that instrument. Where did it go from there from Ace? I mean, because you've got such a different style than Ace Freely, so I imagine there's some other influences in there in between you know that and now. There, there's tapes of me sounding exactly like Ace Freely, <laughs> just ripping his licks completely. You know, um, the first song I ever wrote was called Guitar Heaven, and it was just you know, total Ace Freely licks. But no, I, I went through, you know, when I was 13, 14, 15, all the greatest guitar players were out. Van Halen, uh, to name the most important one, because without him, I don't think I would have gotten to where I got to because tapping, the guitar tapping technique that he uses uh, is something that I um, adopted immediately, but not because I saw him on MTV because they didn't have that yet. There was no video. All there was was the picture on the back of the album where his finger was not where it should be. And <laughs> I looked at that and said, how is he doing that? And that's how I did that. But there was also Peter Frampton with Do You Feel Like We Do, which is you know the coolest solo ever. And the Outlaws had green grass and high tides, long solos, with great playing. Leonard Skinner, um, you know, uh, so many of the 70s uh, guys were just so cool. Guitar, the guitar hero thing was a thing. And, that, and everyone wanted to be a guitar hero. So, um, and, and then I went through this jazz thing. Uh, I went to Berkeley for like six, uh, I don't know, two semesters. And it totally wasn't for me. They told me that I was holding the pick wrong and I was sitting wrong and that I would never make as much money as they do, the teachers. Like, the teacher told me, like, you'll never make as much money as I do playing in an orchestra, um, playing the way you do with that ridiculous tapping thing and holding the pick the way you do. And so I just got in the car and drove away. My dad was pissed because he paid for it. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, but I did go through this Alan Holdsworth kind of thing and Steve Morris, the dregs. I was huge into the dregs, of which Rod Morgenstein would later go on to be the winger drummer, which was a, you know, amazing, uh, surprise for me. Um, Kip had never heard of him, but I was, you know, shaking in my boots, <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, I went through a jazz thing, but not jazz, jazz, like fusion jazz, Jean-Luc Ponty mainly. Yeah, I had the pleasure of seeing Steve Morse years ago at the Park West in Chicago, and it just blew me away. It wasn't the dregs, it was the Steve Morse band, but yep. he was just absolutely incredible. He's absolutely incredible. You and, mentioned and What a songwriter. You mentioned Eddie Van Halen, and obviously, you know, the unfortunate passing last week, and people have been talking and remembering him. You mentioned that without him, you wouldn't be where you are today. Talk more about that. What was what was the influence? What was it like seeing him and hearing him and the influence he had on you? Well, you know, they were, for me and for a lot of people, they were the first glam, real glam band that, that made it huge. 
Um, they, they were, you know, for one thing, nothing sounded like that. You hadn't heard anything like that before when that album came out. It was on fire and it was raw and it was only one guitar. There weren't all, you know, double guitars and stuff. It was the first kind of 80s rock band um, with the big hair and everything. But those guys, you know, could jump five, five, <clears throat> five feet in the air and they had the best front man of all time, hands down, David Lee Roth. And, you know, nothing was cooler than to go to a Van Halen concert when they came out. It was like, oh my God, we're going to see Van Halen. They were the, 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 you know, the coolest thing ever. And when I saw that show, I saw a Woman and Children First tour. I had never seen anything like David Lee Roth or Eddie Van Halen. Uh, it was, I was completely in shock through the whole thing. Um, David Lee Roth stood in like a ballet position with his hands spread wide and the audience of 10,000 people went nuts for a solid minute and a half <laughs> of just, you know, and then he goes, you know, look at all the people here tonight, you know, and just, wow, <laughs> just crazy, crazy, crazy cool. Um, and yeah, you know, Van Halen, the tapping thing, I, I don't think I would have been labeled a shredder if I hadn't developed the tap thing, um, the way that I did. And I got it from him. I talked earlier this week on my tribute episode, to Eddie Van Halen, about how Van Halen wasn't just a rock band. They were part of pop culture. I mean, you think about... Sure. You know, the movies that they were talked about, whether it's Back to the Future with the scene with the spaceman suit and Marty McFly's in the, you know, in the bedroom. And you talk about Fast Times at Ridgemont High with Spicoli and all these other mentions. They were transcendent. They were bigger than just a rock band. I mean, Eddie Van Halen played on one of the biggest albums of all time with Thriller. He also, you know, was in the big one of the biggest rock bands of all time. And it just seems like. Back when I was growing up, and I was a few years younger than most kids, but I had an older brother, and I just remember everybody talking about Van Halen. I remember, you know, the painter's caps and the T-shirts. It was just large. They were larger than life at, at a before there were bands like that that came later. You know, yeah, they were the first ones. I mean, David Lee Roth was drinking a bottle of Jack, and the entire arena was filled with pot smoke. And they they opened up the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh, which they never do. And they opened it up, and all the smoke went pouring out. And because it was a windy night, you know, and they shined the spotlight up on the smoke, and it just freaked everybody out. Um, I don't know what that has to do with anything, but it's just that they were they were the band. They were the band. There was nothing cooler than Van Halen, and you know, I was a huge Aerosmith fan, but um, you know, Van Halen trumped it for me the album is a view from the inside this has been a project that you've been working on for years uh i had the pleasure of listening to it this week there's so many different elements with this record there's so much you know every every song every instrumental has a different vibe to it which is really cool what was it like working on this project as long as you did and did the pandemic really kind of push you to finish it Yes, it did. And I had it sitting on my hard drive. It just needed um, real drums and real bass. So uh, I had to go to a studio and um, 
you know, get my drummer to play on it. And I had to send it out to some bass players to play on and mix it, you know, get all that together. And I probably wouldn't have had time to do that. Otherwise I was booked solid. This year was going to be the year of doom for me. Um, I, I was going to make more money this year than I made since 1989. You know, um, I was in Singapore when the, when the thing hit and had to fly home from there. I was going to go to Japan. We were, you know, Australia, New Zealand. Um, then we were doing Sammy Hagar. Um, Whitesnake Sammy Hagar was booked solid. It, it was, you know, it was going to be a great year for me. Um, and I'm sure, you know, everyone has their stories of, of uh, how it's just through this wrench into the engine. Um, but, the, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was like, Kip, what should I do? Which is, you know, I asked that frequently of Kip, Kip, what should I do? Because <laughs> he's my rock. And uh, he said, whatever happened to that fusion stuff you were doing? And I said, oh, my God, it's sitting on my hard drive. It's been my, my pet project for years. He said, why don't you release that? And I was like, oh, my God, great idea. Um, so finally it's coming out and I've been talking about it for a long time, like on my website and everything. So it's very, very exciting for me. Um, and you know, I, I guess typically instrumental records don't sell that well. And you know, I, it made it more of a challenge for me to get a record deal with it, but frontiers records, you know, everything I've done is on frontiers and they were kind enough to, to sign it. And they really like it, which I was surprised because they really only like like melodic rock. But it kind of is pretty melodic. Uh, and they they dug it. And so far, all the interviews I've done, everyone's digging it. Um, and I'm just anxious to see what, what everyone's going to say. But um, I, I had one person tell me that they thought it was refreshing not to have lyrics to concentrate on and just, you know, driving on a nice half an hour drive because it's a short record. Uh, it's perfect for just kind of taking you on a journey. Well, I've always found your playing interesting. I mean, I think back of those days when we are the debut, you meant, you know, I, I think of headed for a heartbreak in that outro that you know, <laughs> is, is very instrumental. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's great. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. And you've never done an instrumental album prior to this. And I think, you know, people always talk. I did, about- I did, a, I, I released some demos that did very well. And that was the driving force kind of behind it was um, one of my biggest selling things was this thing I released called the fusion demos that I did after, uh, after winger disbanded and the eighties was over. I thought maybe I'll be a fusion guy, like kind of like, um, you know, like Steve Vai or Larry Carlton or something like that. And uh, I sent it around, tried to get a record deal. I couldn't do it. But I put it online and everyone bought it and everyone loved it. And it's kind of, you know, it's, it's jazz fusion. It's not rock, but everyone loved it. And, and that's what made me want to do this, which is just more of the same. The album, Sorry, I interrupted you. No, it's, it's fine. The album has so much texture and so much depth in the playing. I mean, you've always had that, but when you take away the vocals and you just focus on you, it's, it's pretty tremendous. And the first single, which was released today, Aurora Borealis, was, is just absolutely beautiful. It's a beautiful melody. It's ah. a beautiful instrumental. Thank you so much. That makes me so happy. You just gave me like a little chill. That was so nice to hear. Um, that song is a duet with me and Michele Lupe from Whitesnake, the keyboard player. We were on tour and I wanted real piano on it. 
so a friend of mine lived in Detroit and we were playing Detroit and he said, I got a piano. There's a piano in the church down the street. We could just throw a mic on it and I'll bring my laptop down. And that's what we did. Um, and so, yeah, that's like a, it's like an Irish jig and it was called Finnegan's wake. And I just thought that was so stupid. And I was telling Rod Morgenstein that we were listening to it in the car and he said, why don't you call it Aurora Borealis, which has nothing to do with the song. It completely doesn't sound like the song is called Aurora Borealis, but I liked the name. So I called it that. And, um, it's a nice tune. It's definitely a nice tune. I, I like the song and it seems like people are liking it online. Um, and you're right, headed for a heartbreak. I got really lucky with that song. You know, when um, I first met Richie Sambora, we were opening for John Bon Jovi, and Richie Sambora came up to me, like walked across this field. And I'm like, oh my God, that's Richie Sambora. And he goes, Rab! And I'm like, oh my God, he knows my name. <laughs> and he goes, <laughs> he goes, man, you're the luckiest guitar player in rock. And I'm like, why is that, Richie Sambora? And he said, because, man, you got the longest solo on the radio. Have you heard how long that damn solo is, man? And I'm like, no, I mean, yeah, I guess so. I, he said, have you heard my solos? I'm like, yeah, I guess you're right. Because, you know, Richie Sambora's solos are just super short. It's all about the hits. And it was sort of like that with Winger, but not headed for a heartbreak. Um, so I really lucked out on that one. And I never thought about that, that, you know, you get to listen to me do my thing for an entire record and maybe some people will like that so i hope so yeah i i agree i mean when you think about your playing whether it was with winger when you were in docking or now with white snake you know it's always like i've like i said before it's it's full of depth it's got some incredible texture to it and you know we that little tease and headed for a heartbreak and then going on to the second album in the heart of the young where it was a little bit more progressive um you know and then you know, going into pull and then 80s kind of blew up and everybody kind of did their own thing. It's nice to hear you. And I think people will finally, I mean, I think people have always appreciated your playing, but when it's just you, I think people are going to be like, wow, he's a pretty damn good guitar player. And I can go, I've been telling you that for like two decades, three <laughs> decades, you know? So, <laughs> Thanks, so, Jay. Yeah. I appreciate that so much. When you're writing music like this, and, it, and it, this covers a span of time, right? I mean, you worked on this for how many years? Really, I mean, Little Robots and Black Magic and Cutting Loose were written in 1987. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a long time ago. Um, so I wanted to redo those songs with an actual real drum kit as opposed to an Alisa's SR-16 drum machine. Actually, the first demos were a Lim 9000 before, you know, it just was giant when the drum machines were as big as, like, three toasters. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's why I redid those songs that people have already heard. And then, you know, there's some of them are newer. Attack of the Massive was a couple years ago. The Way Home was last year. Uh, so just, it was like a song or two a year for 10 years. Um, not, you know, excluding cutting loose and black magic and little robots, which were old, old, old songs. When you're putting this together and you're going back into your vaults and you're, you know, you're pulling stuff out that you've worked on years ago, is it hard to reconnect with that? Did you have to do some different things to, you know, kind of, cause you I mean, you're not the same player you were 30 some years ago. I mean, you've evolved, right? And 
you've you, you've been influenced by other players during that time. So when you listen to something that you did back in the '80s or the '90s, and you're trying to put it on a record in 2020, is that a difficult process, or is it just something that you know it still sounds good to you? You still like it, and you just go with it. Well, the most difficult thing was on you know recreating the old songs on Little Robots uh, specifically was getting the old sounds, the old keyboard sounds. And I did the best I could with what I had, but then after I recorded it, I got a really cool program that does the DX7 and all the old keyboards, like the Oberheim and everything, and I wish I had had that for the record. Um, but I got close enough. And uh, as far as my playing, I mean, since 1989, it hasn't really changed that much. Um, honestly, I mean, I'm a little bit slower. I'm not not quite the the uh, gunslinger that I used to be, but I, I can still play that stuff, but I'm not quite as frenetic as I was then. I'm a little more mature. Um, I can, you know, it, it, it's cool. I, I try and be a little more melodic and everything, but, you know, burn into the stuff to, to uh, make it exciting. It, it wasn't really that much of a challenge. I'm not that much of a different player, to tell you the truth. Honestly, I, and I tried, like, Black Magic I, and Cutting Loose, I tried to make them sound almost exactly like the old ones with a couple of, different things uh, so that it wouldn't be the exact same thing. Like I used David Coverdale in black magic. I put a stop in the song where it just goes back and David goes black magic, you know? <laughs> so we ended up just using the black magic, you know, and just putting it in the hole. Um, but his voice on there is really awesome. And um, I played a little bit of a different solo and cutting loose never had a melody. It was always just rhythms, and it's in my instructional video, which was, came out in 89 and was called Cutting Loose. The song wasn't called Cutting Loose. It didn't have a name, so I just named it Cutting Loose because that was the name of the video. Uh, so they're a little bit different, but I didn't really have a problem with you know, recreating it. When you're writing an instrumental versus a song, you know, a song has lyrics. You're able to express yourself through lyrics. An instrumental, obviously, that you don't have lyrics, and you're trying to convey a feeling. What is the writing process like for you when you're trying to create an instrumental? Okay, so just like with what we do with Winger, it all starts with the riff. So I have to come up with a guitar riff um, with Winger. That's how it starts. And Kip will sit there and stare at me. Um, and, <laughs> you know, it's up to me to come up with the riff and I'll just tell him to, you know, will you go into another room or something? And he goes and he walks around. He'll sit in the bathroom or whatever. And then I'll play something cool after a couple minutes. And he'll say, what's that? And I'm like, is that good? And he's like, yeah, that's good. Let's try that. And he'll come back in the room and we'll do it. But it always starts the riff. And so with the instrumental thing, it all started back then when I was writing those things in 1987. I wanted, I just had my first recorder. And I wanted something cool to jam over, um, to, you know, kind of learn guitar over and, and play riffs over and do melodies over. So you need a piece of music, like a, like a section that inspires you to, um, to play. That's easy to play over where you can play a million things over and it'll sound good. 
That's the first thing. So you need that one section and then you write around that. So, and you know, first, you, although first you have to figure out what, what it is. Is it a chorus? Is it a verse? Is it a pre-chorus? Is it an intro? Is it an outro? Is it a bridge? Um, and you know, and then you build it <clears throat> like Legos, like a puzzle to um, finish the song. When you're looking towards the future here, obviously, you know, you had the album, you finished up that, and you're thinking about touring with Whitesnake or Winger. Have you begin have began those discussions with those bands about what's coming next year? What do you guys anticipate? Or is it still kind of, let's try to figure this out when we get more information, we just don't know yet? No, 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 no. We're, we're, we're going to go. We're going to, someone's going to, you know, when, when it says, when they say go, it's going to be like a slingshot, you know, someone's going to pull us back and we're going to go boom. We're going to hit it. Um, Black Swan um, happened because I had a million riffs and, and I had them because Kip turned them down. Um, usually, you know, I come in with riffs. I come in with riffs and usually Kip doesn't use them. You know, he likes it better when he's doing it with me and it happens on the spot. Um, and that's always just the way it works. A few times he's used riffs that I brought in, but, and I keep writing them for, cause it's good to have them and I've got a bunch of them. Um, and so Jeff Pilson called me three weeks ago and said, Hey man, I think there's probably going to be another black swan record. So, you know, I just want you to keep that in mind. And I said, well, you'll be happy to know that Kip hasn't used any of my riffs and I've got at least 15 because we wrote black swan in 10 days. Um, you know, when I came in there and you can't do anything without a guitar riff, that's how you got to start this kind of music. Um, so Jeff was nervous that I didn't have anything and that would take us a long time to come up with the riffs and to finish the song. So you need that bed to start with. And I've already got a bunch of songs for that. So black Swan is going to happen for sure. And then winger right now is writing, for the new album that we're trying to get out by May, <clears throat> but we've got a really high bar on this one. We want it to be, I mean, you always want it to be the best you've ever done, but we've got kind of a, a, a vision where we want to make a record where every single song is undeniable, like Boston. You know, you just can't deny, or the first Van Halen record, you can't deny any of those songs. Like every single one is awesome. And that's what we want. And we've thrown away already. We've gone like, you know, that's a good song, but it's not good enough. And maybe we can use it on down the line for a greatest hits or something like that, where you do an extra track. But this record has to be the end all be all epic record of doom for winger, because who knows if we'll make another one or not. I mean, we've got like a five year plan to go out there and, and just saturate Europe and Japan and, um, places we haven't been, Australia, New Zealand, all those places, you know, Winger wants to, wants to do that because, you know, we're all getting older. So, um, Winger's a really good band and we haven't really been out that much because of Whitesnake and because of Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship rather, that Johnny Roth is in that band and, and Kip is doing his orchestra and Rob Morgenstein's a professor at Berkeley. So we really want to do a Winger push next year. When you think about your creativity, has it been, I mean, it sounds like you've been staying creative throughout this whole pandemic. I know a lot of people, a lot of musicians have had struggles because, you know, when you're doing the same thing every day, 
it's hard to find that that creativity. How have you managed, how have you been able to overcome that during these times? <clears throat> to, uh, to keep busy, you mean? To be creative and stay busy. Well, I started giving guitar lessons and I've given about 180 of them. So that's how I'm making money right now. And I'm loving it. It's just like, I've met so many people. I've actually made really good friends. One guy has taken 32 lessons and I'm just friends with him now. I'm like him and I are just friends. Like, you know, we talk all the time. I text him, he texts me. Um, and you know, it, it's very enjoyable. I'd rather be on the road. <laughs> That's I'm a touring musician. So I kind of belong on the road. Uh, I, I, I don't like being home for this long, but I'm making the best of it. And I am creating, I'm writing, two new records uh and i got my solo album out finally so yeah i'm 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 doing fine i'm just either writing or giving lessons and um i did a gig last weekend uh, outdoors of course um so yeah i'm doing good Joe Holkstra, I had a conversation with him a couple of weeks ago and he said the same thing about teaching he's been doing a lot of that since the pandemic Yep, him, you know, we have the same students. We're yeah. completely different teachers. <laughs> completely from a totally different place. Like he he's a he's a really good teacher, you know, like he really knows his stuff. Um, you know, he can tell you, "Oh, that's Phrygian mode." And I'm like, "I don't know what it's called, but here's what it is." <laughs> I thought that, you know, 2020 was going to be this big year for rock music. You know, existing artists releasing new material, new bands that were coming out that were just awesome. That had to be put yeah. on pause. And I think 2020 is the perfect recipe for, I'm sorry, 2021 is the perfect recipe yeah. for rock music. You need angst for rock music to thrive. You need the youth to be like, this is bullshit. You know, this is crap. And I think based on the fact that I have a 15-year-old son, you yeah, know, I, I'm, I see that front and center. And I think with all the new music that's going to be coming out later this year and into next year, I think there's going to be this big, huge push with rock music like I thought there was going to be in 2020. But you add in that angst of the youth that wasn't there maybe a year ago. And I think it's going to thrive. I think that's really astute of you to pick up on. I, I agree with that. I, I can see that happening hundred percent uh, next year, you know, these kids who've been cooped up in their house just want to go, you know, ah, yeah! <laughs> you know <Right>. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I yeah. hear it yeah. from my, yeah. my, my son and his friends. They're all like, Oh dad, this sucks doing the same thing every day. And you yeah. know, it's, it's going to create that. And like, you know, like the song that you guys did during the pandemic, that was a remake of, a winger song from a previous album. Oh, that better, was great. Better days are coming, right? Well, it has to be. It can't get that much worse. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to say that, but, um, you know, I mean, there's got to be a vaccine at some point. They're, they're working really hard on it. And, uh, I can't see this, you know, everyone wearing masks for the rest of their lifetimes. It would be... Heart, you know, and not shaking hands anymore. Who knows? I don't know, but yeah, yeah. I'm just going to think positive, you know. But that video was Positively. a lot of fun. You know, I mean, you know, was that your daughter in the, in, in behind you when that, uh, in that video? My granddaughter. Okay. It was my granddaughter. She came in, she came in and started dancing 
and, and I said, what the hell? Just put it, leave it in there. It's, it's great. Um, and she ended up getting like the most comments ever. Like Bella is a star and she's, she's a handful. She's so much fun. Yeah, it was great. And then, you know, Alice Cooper and Klaus mine and Alan Parsons and all these amazingly huge artists, uh, agreed to do it, which, uh, was, uh, so wonderful. Really, really cool. Yeah, that's that was a favorite of mine when that was released. I just enjoyed the whole vibe. I think a lot of music fans needed something like that, you know, to put a smile on their face because that was at the very beginning of all the lockdowns and the pandemic. It's Kip's idea. He's, he knows his stuff, and he put all that together. And, you know, what we did was we got people from all over the world to sing the chorus from any place they wanted to. One guy did it from his airplane like, you know, 30,000 feet up, uh, you know, a guy did it on top of a mountain and, you know, there was all kinds of, you know, families all together at the park and it was really, really, really cool. And they put all of those pictures together in, you know, smaller, smaller things where that you can barely see them even where there's, it looked like there was, you know, a hundred all people singing the chorus, which is a great chorus. Better days coming. It's a very, very nice song, kind of a funk song, not a heavy metal thing or anything. Um, and, you know, it's a great thing for Kip to do. And Winger's a great band. They're all great guys. We're one of the only bands that we're all best friends. Like, when we're on the road, we have breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. That's awesome. And we never, like, argue. We just laugh the whole time. Uh, Don Crash told me his story about the what he submitted Don Crash from the band Heat where I guess he was uh, uh, had a long night uh, filled with wine and he remembered that he had to send Kip a video and he has a green screen in his house which I don't know anybody that has a green screen in their house <laughs> like you know I'm, I'm, I'm interviewing and I'm like dude you have a green screen in your house like I never even thought of that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a good idea. So he put together this thing with like this background of like a sunset and stuff. And, and it was just, he was, we were laughing about it. It was pretty funny. And that's a great idea. Yeah. I think yeah. everybody should have a green screen in their house. <laughs> well, especially if you're a musician and, you know, like I just released that song and I didn't have time to make a video for it. And I'm sure that it won't get as many hits as the one that I made a video for. It's kind of a video age. And if you don't make a video with your song, it's going to just go away. So I'm going to try and make a video for the release on November 6th, uh, probably for like Cutting Loose or something like that. Because that's the way it is now. you got to make a video. Yeah, you got to capture people's attention for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, Reb, it's been a blast talking with you. I do appreciate it. Once again, Reb Beach, everybody. Um, the new album out November 6th. Why don't you head, go ahead and plug it? Well, yeah, the new album's out November 6th, and I've been working on it for a long time. It's getting great reviews, and uh, I'm very, very proud of it. It's got a little bit of everything, and it's very relaxing to listen to, I think. It, it's got rock stuff, and it's very melodic. Oh, you'll love it. I think if you like, you know, my playing and, and the stuff that I've done in the past, then I can't see you not liking it. I certainly like it, and I'm very proud of it. The album is A View from the Inside. The first single is Aurora Borealis. It's a beautiful track, great melody. You, I know my listeners will like it. Once again, Reb, thank you very much. Thanks, Jay. 
I'm Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will talk again soon. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.